right, welcome back. Welcome to Crime Pursuit Podcast. I am your host, and tonight we have a story regarding Jolene Lakey. Tonight, her sister is going to be our special guest. Justina, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, great. So we're here to talk about your sister, Jolene, who has been missing since 1986, Let's hear a little bit about your sister before she was missing. What kind of person was she? Oh, she was goofy and silly. Uh, Your typical 11-year-old. She was outrageous. She lived out loud. She was the baby of the family. She liked to wear bright clothes and long dangly earrings. And she was forever rescuing stray animals and bringing them into the house. She wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up. And much to our mother's dismay and chagrin, she would just bring in feral cats and baby mice and basically any animal she would find outside that she thought needed mothering, she would bring it in the house. And she was goofy and fun and outspoken and outlandish and outrageous and everybody loved her yeah and you know so obviously she had a a big heart especially for animals yes she did yes okay so what we hear tonight is to discuss her disappearance in 1986 let's start from the beginning and let our listeners know exactly what happened okay um I guess I should start with some backstory. My mother had four children. She um, and we were the Lakey children. And of those four, Jolene was the youngest. My father, Mr. Lakey, abandoned our mother with four children to raise. And after several years, my mother eventually remarried. And she remarried a man with four children. And we all kind of squished the children and the families together so that there were eight children living in a house and mom and dad. So there was a total of 10 people living together. And that's, that's kind of the backstory. Okay. um, Yeah. Uh, So let's talk about the disappearance with your sister. What happened? The, the day was August 26th, 1986. And my sister, Jolene, was visiting my mother in the hospital. My mother was in the hospital for some planned surgery. And I really wish I could remember what it was and why she was in the hospital. But I was not home at all that day. I was gone all day. I was actually, I had a job, which is illegal, but whoops. I worked under the table cleaning office buildings in Scranton, Pennsylvania, And the story is that my sister, after visiting our mother in the hospital, was going to spend the night at a friend's house. And she simply never made it to our house. She was supposed to walk to our house to pick up some clothes and toothbrush and supplies and then walk back to to her friend's house. But she just never made it. She vanished on a city street in the middle of the day. And... And that is all that I know of that that night. 
So, I, um, so she was, she was, you saying that this took place after she left, she was on her way home or on her way somewhere else. She was on her way home. I believe, um, this has never been confirmed, but it's always been the accepted family story that after Jolene left the hospital, she was walking home to get the clothes that she would need. This is a little bit of a strange story because literally in order for her to go home to get the clothes she would have she would need she quite literally walked past the house that she was supposed to be staying at and it just seems like a strange trip to take Uh, basically she was there and she was a kid so what if she didn't have her toothbrush and her clothes for the next day i feel like those were not as important as hanging with her friends but the story is she went to her friend's house and she said, I'm just going to go home and get my clothes and I'll be right back. And she simply never made it home. So actually, she stopped at a friend's house after she left the hospital, right? Yes. Okay. And then that's when no one heard from her again, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So now we know what we know. Is there any type of evidence to prove that she left her friend's house and went uh, was attempting to head home? No, I don't have any concrete evidence of that. What about, I, the, I don't. what about the police? I don't know what they have. Now she's missing. Um, what do you remember? You know, what did you, did you tell your mother? Did someone else tell her? I don't know. I was at work the entire time all of this was happening. So all of my knowledge is secondhand. But the story is that my mother got a call from the mother of the child that Jolene was supposed to be spending the night at her friend. And they called my mother in the hospital and said, Hey, is she with you? She's not here. And from that phone call, my mother realized that my sister was missing and called the police immediately. Okay. So, so now the police are involved. Yes. What happened next? Um, I'm actually not sure. I, the story is that the state police showed up at the hospital room that my mother was staying in and asked for a picture and a picture was given right away to the state police. And all of this was taking place while I was at work. I honestly had no idea. Um, after I got out of, out of work, which was approximately nine o'clock at night, I walked home. So it probably took me a half an hour to walk home. And I basically walked into a nightmare where my memories that I, that I can absolutely take over. My memories are quite fragmented, but I opened the door and basically the, the children in the house had pounced and said, is Jolene with you? And the answer was, of course not. Why would I take my sister to work? Jolene was 11. I was 13. Um, why I had had the job since I was 11. And, and there was this incredible confusion as to why I would take my younger sister to work with me. And when the children told me that Jolene was missing, that we had no idea where she was, that she simply was not where she was supposed to be, from that second on, nothing in my world made sense. The continents had somehow realigned themselves. There was no map. 
There was no understanding of anything that happened since. And it it took a really long time in order to, to put any of the pieces of the puzzle together. What I do remember from that night is that there was no adult in the house with the seven remaining children who had gathered. And as an adult, looking back, I find that a bit odd. Somehow the children sort of corralled ourselves into one room and divided ourselves up and made a plan to go out looking for Jolene, which is absurd. We're, we're children. We're kids. What on earth can we possibly do? But there was this inner push to locate Jolene and we were just doing what struck us as logical. Um, we were completely unaware of all the failures that were happening all around us by the adults and the, the children took it on themselves to make a plan to locate our sister. And that's pretty much well, all me, that I remember. Well, let me ask night. you, well, let me ask sure. you this. Um, well, you said they were there by themselves. Who was supposed to have been there with them? Your mom's in the hospital. Who was Correct. supposed to have been, who's the adult that's supposed to have been with them? I'm assuming my stepfather should have been with us, but barring him being with us, my aunt lived right across the street from the place where my sister Jolene was supposed to be staying. So there was an adult within walking distance of our house. And when I say that, I mean 20 minutes away by walk or you know five minutes by car. So either my stepfather was supposed to be there and he wasn't, or my aunt could have been there, but she also was not there. There were, we were basically seven children completely alone in the house oh. when tragedy struck and we had no idea how to deal with it. Okay. So now that you're home, when, mm -hmm. did, when did your stepdad finally come home and find out that your sister was missing? I don't know. My suspicion is that he was at the hospital with my mother but I don't know. And I, I guess I want to say this is the thing about trauma is that this absolutely fragments memories and it's very apparent in me. I honestly do not recall seeing an adult in the house for what my brain remembers as some time. I don't know when an adult finally came home and took over the responsibility. Okay, so was this odd to you? Had this happened before with him not being there, or this just like a one-time thing? No, we were actually um, eight children living alone. We were frequently without adult supervision, so this was not unheard of. We were taught to cook and clean and take care of ourselves from a very, very early age. So being in the house without an adult was a relatively common thing. Okay. So with that being said, I would it would be safe to say that it probably wasn't not a good home life. The the abuse in the home can only be described as repetitive and horrific. Can we talk about the abuse? Sure. Um I may cry, but that's not important. What's important is okay. what I'm saying and that's not okay. the yeah, and not the tears in it. We children were physically abused by our mother 
our mother, Lois Lakey, would frequently, when she would get frustrated with us, she would hit us or beat us with a belt or hit us with a switch or frequently we got our heads slammed off walls. Um, I remember I had the wrong sheets on my bed. My mother had a waterbed and for whatever reason I had them on the sheets for the waterbed on my bed. And for this offense, my mother slammed my head against the wall again and again. We were knocked into trees head first or we were shoved down the stairs. We were very severely punished for relatively minor things. My mother would lose her temper quite frequently and she would beat us. Our stepfather was a relatively low functioning man and were he to be given a diagnosis that I'm aware of, it would probably something like high functioning autistic spectrum disorder. He was greatly lacking in intelligence and it was really, really obvious that my stepfather was lacking in intelligence and he didn't ever stand up to our mother. He kind of just let her beat us. Um, we were eight children and two adults and working was never high on my mother's priority. And what that meant was that we were living in extreme poverty. And when I say this, what I mean is we were stand in line for government cheese poor. And we frequently skipped meals because we didn't have enough money for food. And frequently the only meals that we ate was lunch at schools. In addition to this horrific abuse, this really, really savage physical abuse, because we, we always had like black eyes or bruises. In addition to this physical abuse, there was a great deal of sexual abuse that was happening inside our home. Sometimes our, our uncle would molest us. And in fact, our uncle turned out to be a bisexual um, predator he literally molested every child in the household at one point. And so basically we, we children were left to our own devices and we grew up really hungry and starving and sexually abused and physically abused with adults who didn't really care. It was the children's job to keep the house clean. And for example, my sister had the job, her job was to cook and my job was to wash the dishes and take out the trash. And my mother had eight children and she had just divided up all the housework so that she didn't have to do any and that the children kind of ran the household. Um, and so we were living in desperate isolation together while the adults did their thing, whatever that was. So let me ask you, you said that your uncle sexually mm -hmm. molested every one of you kids? Yes. Did, yes. Did, did anybody contact the police or tell another family member or a teacher at school or anything? So the answer to that question is yes and yes. I remember telling my mother what our uncle was doing. And essentially I was blamed for alluring, uh, for, for trapping my uncle with my child like allure. I was blamed and called a harlot and a Jezebel and told that it was completely inappropriate to wear a bathing suit in the swimming pool. And had I not been wearing a bathing suit, his attentions would never have been drawn on me. Basically, we children were blamed. Wow. My, my uncle impregnated my sister. And How was your sister? 
she was 11, I think. So this what? is not the sister that went missing. This is a different sister. So my your uncle, sister got pregnant at 11 years old. That is correct. Yes. Wow. Yes. And at this point, so the sister that my uncle impregnated was my mother's favorite. And if you're familiar with narcissistic roles, she was the golden child. I was the scapegoat. And when my uncle impregnated my sister, our mother temporarily broke off contact with the sexually abusive uncle. My sister had to travel to a different state to have an abortion at the time. And they, did, and they didn't question this or, or try to call law enforcement regarding that? No. And in fact, later we'll, we'll get to all the failures that had happened around, around the, the hell that we were living, basically. But no. Um, before my mother married the man who became our stepfather when we were living in a separate state, I told the teacher. And for this, we were... We four children were taken away from our mother, and I think we were away from her for about nine months or so. And it took a long time for our mother to get the children back in her custody. But as soon as she got us in her custody, she fled the state and we started a new life in Pennsylvania. So, yes, we were taken off our mother in a different state, but once we moved to Pennsylvania, Every system that's in place to, to guard and protect children failed us. Okay. And what state was this again that failed you guys? The state that failed us was Pennsylvania. Okay. Now, this, this was after your sister, Jeline, went missing or before? No, this is before my sister went missing. Okay. So, Pennsylvania didn't do what they were supposed to do. And now we have your sister that is just missing out of nowhere, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. So let's talk about the investigation. Is there, okay. do you remember any parts of the investigation where they, did they have any leads? Did they have any suspect? I don't remember where there were any leads. I will tell you that the investigation was very, very strange. I will tell you that I remember being home one day and my mother was not home, but this happened a lot. And the, pol the police came to the door. And when they came to the door, I asked them a question. And the question that I asked them was, why are you using such an old photo? And I, I was 13 and I just remember that the two policemen who had come to the door had shared a strange look and I knew that there was something adult that was passing between them that I did not understand. And the police asked me if there was a different photo of Jolene, a photo of her at, at the correct age. And I said, of course. And I gave the police a picture of Jolene that when Jolene was 11 years old, when my mother eventually returned home that day, I will tell you that I received the worst beating of my life. The worst? The worst, the absolute worst beating of my life. And she did it outside and it was very public and it was horribly humiliating. And it was the longest beating of my life because usually she just got mad and she slammed my head off a wall and it it would last maybe three minutes or so and then she'd walk away disgusted 
but this was severe and it lasted a long time and it was incredibly traumatic. So the fact that the photo was out of date struck me as odd. Another okay. thing about, about, but see, this is not the police fault. And this is something that I want to be perfectly clear about is that there are so many strange and morally reprehensible actions that were taken by my family. Okay. And I understand that my family lied to the police at every turn. And as such, I have no ill will whatsoever toward any of the investigative work done by the police because they were they were going on what they knew, but what they knew was most likely not correct. Now, when you say it, that the your family was lying to the police. Mm-hmm. Can you be more specific of who you're speaking of? I know you're you're meaning your mom, but who else? But who else? So I also mean my aunt, who I have to refer to narcissism because I do believe that most of my family, the adults around me, were narcissistic or sociopathic or seriously deranged and dangerous and delusional. But for whatever reason, my aunt had inserted herself into the investigation and she would call the media and say, oh, I heard from the kidnappers and they want X amount of money and they want it dropped off at a park. And this this struck the children as very odd because it seemed to suggest that the kidnappers somehow knew the family because we were shockingly poor, but my aunt had money. So if they if they only wanted money, my aunt was a good person to call. But it was such a, a strange thing to happen um, because it was our phone number that was flashing on the TV every night, our phone number and the police's phone number. So it, it was a really weird investigation. And, and my aunt would call the media and say outrageous things. And there was a newspaper article basically with lies in it um we children were told not to speak to the police not to watch the news not to give any interviews and to basically keep our mouths shut okay and and this is something that i really i'm so sorry this is this is incredibly difficult but i i need to get this out we children looked at the strangeness of the adults around us and we concluded that our family had something to do with our sister's disappearance. Yeah. Sound like it. Yes. And we children were absolutely terrified. And, and I, I, I'm speaking, it sounds like I'm speaking in hyperbole, but these are the words we were convinced that our mother made our sister disappear and we grew up in literal terror that if we did not make this woman happy that she would make us disappear too now let me ask you how did she take the disappearance of your sister can do you remember her body language her attitude her was there a a long period of time of her grieving because her daughter was missing no, there was never anything that looked like grief at all. Uh, the stories that I tell regarding my mom uh, and my sister's disappearance are my mother was in the hospital 
I don't remember why I really wish I did. But on August 26th, when she learned that my sister was missing, I know that for whatever reason, my mother stayed in the hospital for three more days and that we children were probably left alone in the household for three more days while my mother stayed in the hospital. When my mother was released from the hospital, she did not come home right away. In fact, the first thing that my mother did was take herself out to breakfast um, with her husband. So my mother, my stepfather, and my, my older sister's boyfriend. And this is a really sick and twisted story because there, it was an open family secret that my mother had developed a sexual relationship with my 14-year-old sister's 20-something-year-old boyfriend. What? This is disgusting, and, and this story is morally repulsive, but it is true that my mother had developed a sexual relationship with my older sister, let's call her L for privacy's sake, with my older sister's boyfriend. Okay. And so when my mother got out of the hospital, she took my older sister's boyfriend and her husband out to breakfast, but she did not come home until after that. Uh, we children found, we judged my mother's actions in that she didn't care that her daughter was missing. She didn't care enough to have an adult be in the house to watch her other children. She didn't care that her daughter was missing and she stayed in the hospital and basically failed us as a parent in every possible way. And all of these things, plus the fact that she beats us or occasionally lets a sexual predator have us, right. led to a distrust of our mother, the emotional certainty that our mother knows more than she's letting on. So my mother was in the hospital. She couldn't physically have had Jolene abducted. She couldn't physically be the one who have done it to have done it, but maybe she knows something or maybe this disgusting sexual lifestyle splashed over and maybe one of the men who was always in the house um, for whatever reason made off with Jolene or maybe she sold Jolene or we children felt that our mother knew something more than she was letting on based solely on her behavior. And I do have to say that uh, that mothers of the missing have no baseline. They have no normal. But that our mother's behavior was so hurtful and strange that it evoked real terror. So no one, you know, came forward and said, all right, lady, your daughter's missing. You know, we need to find out what's going on. There's something you might have forgot or, I mean, she just let it go. Just It was just done. She was just done with it just like that. Pretty much. She was intervie interviewed often and the police came often, but we were essentially given an edict from on high not to talk to the police at all. And as such, we didn't. And so the entire dealings of the police were my mother's job. And we've, children were basically kept in a in a cloud of ignorance and i remember there was an article that said hey this is a little weird that that why were the police given a photo that was five years out of date right i agree so yeah so there was eventual 
like the the lies and the the strange behavior of our mom eventually did catch up with her in the media but not that i am aware of no one <laughs> no one um publicly called her out on it or <laughs> yeah i'm sorry no, one of the one of the points and one of the reasons that I'm telling this story because the story is disgusting and it's horrific and one of the reasons that I'm telling this story is because there were so many failures of every system and I promise that I will get to that and I will have more to say about that later but well, even you could the police you, at the time. You can go ahead time, and put that out there now. No, you can go ahead and put that out there now. Okay. Um, I I don't know when the mandated reporter law came into being, but I do know that in 1986, the mandated reporter law was around for some time. And when I, the mandated reporter is the law that if a teacher or a doctor or a youth director, director or someone outside the family who has interaction with the family notices child abuse, they have a legal obligation to tell the police about it, to open an investigation about it. And we children would go to school with bruises or our mother, my mother, when she would get angry with me, would simply grab my hair and just hack at it with scissors. And I looked awful and we were literally starving and we had bruises and, and and I was working at 11 and there were all these people who had an obligation to call the police about abuse on our behalf and they didn't. Even when my sister disappeared and the police came to the door and there was no adult home, the police should have done something. The police should have, they were, they were the police. They, they saw that there was no adults and they should have taken us away from our mother. Uh, another really horrible thing about our mother is that she, for whatever reason, in her head was this idea that once a girl turned 11, she was ready for a sexual relationship and our mother would often find boyfriends for us once we turned 11. And I remember my mother had found a boyfriend for me when I was 11 and I entered into a sexual relationship with a teenager. He was 18 years old and he was basically presented as my boyfriend. And that meant that I needed to go to Planned Parenthood. At 11 years old, I went to Planned Parenthood to get condoms because I did not want to get pregnant. And that means that the staff at Planned Parenthood saw what was essentially a child sex trafficking ring and completely missed it because my mother had five girls. And as soon as we turned 11, we were immediately thrust at men. We were positively shoved at men. There were men in and out of our house. Many were parolees and the... Uh, sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. The life that we were living, the police missed. Planned Parenthood missed. Yeah. The teachers at school missed. The youth ministers at church missed. Everyone around us who should have protected us flat out failed us. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, and, 
and that that's a point that I really, really, really need to make is because most people don't understand that evil exists or most people don't accept that evil is so banal and benign and walking amongst them. And they, they flat out dismiss out of hand the idea that anything like what happened to us could happen. And that's actually not true. The truth is that evil isn't 100% evil 100% of the time. The truth is that it's very easy to hide evil. And the warning is, if for any adult out there who suspects any abuse anywhere, anytime, is to please, please call. Call the police. Call Child Protective Services. Because any one of those people our teachers, our doctors, the emergency room doctors, the the doctor that gave my sister an abortion, Planned Parenthood, any one of those people could have prevented the tragedy that was the abduction of my sister. I and, agree. I agree. And it's, I, I lived this and I am a relatively functioning human being, but that is only through incredible therapy and it is only through counseling on a level that most people flat out don't need but the truth is that the abduction of my sister shattered our family and it 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 did to our family what everyone thinks happens when tragedy strikes my mother and father eventually divorced and the siblings sank into addiction and one really went off the rails into mental illness. And the most appropriate thing to say is that all of the children froze at whatever age they were when my sister disappeared. They emotionally stopped maturing and they are essentially teenagers desperate for love. And it's so, so sad at how the family splintered and and sank into despair and mental illness and alcoholism and addiction and avoidance and sex and basically everything that that you think happens when tragedy strikes happened and what i say about this is that one relatively functioning adult out of seven is really, really bad odds. And it's the the tragedy essentially ripples outward in ways that you can't imagine. I'm sorry, I am getting ahead of myself. No, you're fine. You're fine. Sorry. No, you're completely fine. So the thing that I want to say is I, as we're having this interview, I am struggling to remind myself to be brave because this is emotionally flaying and this is very, very difficult. And I am speaking as openly as I possibly can about literally the worst time in my life. Yes. And this is very, very difficult because the truth is, is that even with literally decades of therapy, I am absolutely terrified of people and i do want to i do want to eventually go into what happens if someone you love goes missing 
and or what happened specifically to me and my sisters and my family when my when my sister went missing and and that is that in 1986 when my sister went missing there was a very very large and lengthy search for my sister a lot of people volunteered and joined the police and literally went looking for my sister. They did what we children did on the first night my sister went missing. That's the good. That's the good in humanity that we saw. And I have to hold on to that because while that was happening simultaneously, humanity was baring its teeth at us. And what I mean when I say that is, we got prank phone calls. And in the way that I am called by my middle name, our sister Jolene also went by her middle name. So my sister's name is Michelle Jolene. I am Arlena Justina. I go by my middle name. She goes by her middle name. People would call and scream into the receiver, mommy, help me, it's Michelle. And we knew immediately that this was not our sister, that this was someone calling to, for whatever reason, um, we frequently would throw the receiver when we would get these prank phone calls of someone begging for help or crying or screaming and identifying themselves by a name that our sister would never, ever identify herself by. And our tires were slashed and our house was eggs and rocks were thrown through the window and random people on the street would basically walk up to me and tell me how awful my family must be and how this was God's punishment. And the worst of humanity was on display to children. And I'm later, I'm learning now that this is relatively common, that people are really awful to the families of, of the missing. Um, it's like online trolling, I guess, only this is before the internet. So I guess what I, what I want your listeners to try and understand is just imagine being, being a kid, this horrible tragedy has happened. You can't trust the police. You literally think your mother is going to smother you with a pillow or poison you, or you're going to die any, any night. And there's absolutely no comfort anywhere anywhere at all and you're just trying to survive and you're just trying to live and random strangers are tearing you down for something you had no control over it's it's the the result is a ptsd that continues to this day i am terrified of people we all are all of the children are uh we we don't we don't trust easily. And uh, I understand the psychological need to say I am protected from tragedy because X. But that belief is an illusion. And tragedy can befall anyone. And a lot of time, whatever that belief is that you're comforting yourself with is actually horribly, horribly cruel to the people that you're trying to separate yourself from. And it is that horrifying psychological need to find a scapegoat or to cling to a reason that causes so much psychological trauma for the people that you are scapegoating. Yes. And 
yeah, the, the message is admit to yourself that evil is everywhere and admit to yourself that it can happen. Yep, you you are so right. Well, let me and, ask you this. Um, mm -hmm. In throughout all this time, did it ever come to you, hey, this person's a suspect, or did you hear the police say anybody was in a, a person that could be responsible? So, yes, um, I, I, I want to say approximately a year after my sister was missing, my mother moved us from the house that we were living in to a different house in the same city. And approximately a year after that, we heard this name, uh, Frank Asolani. Um, he was actually convicted of murdering a, a nine-year-old named Renee Jean Waddle. Um, and after, after his, his um, conviction and, and arrest and trial, our family started saying how, hey, I know this guy. He's our mechanic. The thing is, is that I have no memories at all of Asalani. I have none. And I have never, ever heard the name before. I do know that he had a garage that was on the walking route to school. I do know that when... So, so when my sister went missing, I was 13, about to turn 14, and high school started for me. So I was going to a new school. My, my sister Jolene was two years behind, and she would have been going into middle school, but she would walk to school with the other younger children in, in elementary school. And there was a garage that she was known to stop at because Jolene loved animals, and there was a garage and the owner of the garage had a very, very scary, very mean, like junkyard type dog, a German shepherd that we were terrified of. But that for whatever reason, when Jolene saw this dog, she saw a friendly little puppy and she would stop. And Jolene had this magic so that where the other children were afraid of this dog that was, you know, behind a fence, she would, you know, happily run up to this dog and the, the dog would not you know, he would stop barking and growling and he would sit down and she would try to pet him through the fence. And we all assumed that this was Asolani's garage. Uh, the facts would bear out that that's not the case. This was a, Asolani never had a dog and the garage was in the wrong place. So when we heard Asolani, we all, all the children thought, oh, this must be the owner of the garage. And yeah, yeah, we, we, we know the garage, we know the dog, we know the stories, but the garage that we were thinking of was actually in a different location and Frank Asolani never had a dog. So we were incorrect in that assessment. Okay. That, so, well, let go me, ahead. well, let me ask you this. Now that you know what you know and the investigation has really landed anywhere to bring evidence of foul play or anything, do you mm -hmm. believe that she's still alive or she is deceased? I hope that she is still alive. But my logical brain tells me that the most likely scenario is that she is deceased. May I ask why? 
because not very many 11 year olds have the financial and emotional resources to get gone and stay gone. You're right. To never use your social security number, to never use your real name, to, to get a job and to somehow register yourself as a human being requires paperwork that she had no access to. Okay. So I do suspect that she is not alive, but I will say that hope is a terrible, terrible thing. And it is because of this hope that I refer to myself by my childhood nickname on my Facebook page, just in the, in the hope that she's out there and that she's looking for some connection to family. Yeah. Okay. So all these years and you know, here's nothing you, you guys, you, you don't have anything. Correct. Justina, where do you go from here? Well, I moved out of my house as soon as I could and essentially separated myself from the trauma of the abuse that was ongoing. And I picked up my life and tried to build it as if I were an orphan. And in attempting to deal with apathy surrounding the missing and ongoing trauma and in an attempt to heal myself, I decided that once a year on August 26th, I would walk Jolene home. And I kind of made a deal with myself that in order to survive and be a functioning adult, I would put everything aside until August. And every August, I would essentially pick up all the trauma, all the sexual abuse and the emotional abuse and the physical abuse and the cruelty of the town and all the trauma surrounding my sister's abduction and only pick it up in August. And the trade-off means that I go crazy every year in August. What I mean is I cry in August. I remember things that I don't want to remember, like, you know, the rock flying through the window or the fact that we were gathered with no adult present or just the, the horror of, of the life that we were living at the time. And, this has a name, this is called anniversary reaction, and it's, it's relatively common to experience some sort of pull of the calendar on the, the anniversary day of a tragic event. Over the years, what I've done is I, I moved out of Pennsylvania. I now live in Massachusetts, and I, I went to Pennsylvania to tell the state police hey, this is what happened. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not angry. I bear no ill will. I know you were lied to at every corner. I, I understand. But these are the facts. And I went with pictures because there were always random men living at our house. And I, I feel that this is a lifestyle that could have led to my sister's abduction. 
And so I went with pictures of these random men and said, oh, this one called himself this because they, they never went by their names. And this one called himself this and this one called himself this. And here's this guy's name and this guy's name. And, and you know, I, I essentially went with what I thought was proof and other avenues to pursue. But nothing ever, um, nothing ever came of my going to the police and, and telling them the truth or, or showing up with pictures Um the investigation went nowhere. This past year, an anonymous letter was mailed to the local media station. And in it, it describes a woman and her husband driving and she saw a fire in the woods off the road and heard what she describes as a blood curdling scream that was suddenly silenced. And this letter was mailed to the media and not the police. And the letter was signed, perhaps a foolish old woman. And that, I think, is probably one of the cruelest things that I've ever experienced. It, it sounds like someone trying to unburden themselves Right. It's, it sounds like someone having an attack of consciousness of consciousness. Right. But this this anonymous letter was sent to the media, not to the police. And the police said, hey, we'd love to hear from you. No charges will be filed. Just come and tell us what you know. But the effect of this horrific anonymous letter felt that someone out there was cruelly toying with our emotions. It's outrageous that someone would be so horrifically cruel as to give this letter to the media, but not the police. It strikes me as a narcissistic, um, psychopathic attempts at gaining sympathy and or attention while actively doing nothing for the actual case. And the effect that it specifically had on my life, because most of the children dismissed it out of hand and they said, oh, I know who that was. That was our aunt. Um, but the effect that it had on my life was for about two months or so, I was afraid to leave my house, which sounds really strange, but it was hazy and mysterious animosity directed at the families of the missing. And at the time that my sister went missing, my sister isn't the only person that went missing from Scranton, Pennsylvania around this time. There were horrifying sexual assaults that took place where the perpetrator would burn his victims alive. How many how many cases was that? Uh, off the top of my head, I can think of four, and, and there that, may and, be more. And that was in your area where your sister yes. was missing? Really? Yes. Yes, that was in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and so this anonymous letter seems to tie in with the fact that, oh, somebody was burned alive, and I was too cowardly to do anything about it. 
Um, wow. And so, so even if it was not my sister's murder that this letter writer is addressing, it could have been another one. For, there was a college student that was horrifically murdered that way. And Renee Watto, who Frank Ocelani is in jail for, and the police do believe that he is a suspect in <clears throat> the disappearances of the college girls and of my sister at the time. Um, <clears throat> she was also burned in it and while she was still alive and and it it was unconscionably cruel it didn't seem helpful at all and it really really affected me it i bet shook me to my intestines i guess um just this thought that Somewhere in the world is animosity and just shocking cruelty directed at at children or at the undeserving right. was a truly terrifying thing. It, it just it felt like I was exposed and this thick cloud of evil and cruelty was somehow directed at me. Um, it it honestly took took a couple months of therapy to simply get me to safely leave my house and to feel okay. Yeah. This this letter happened to coincide with lockdown, so I didn't really have to leave. But I do want to say it was one of the cruelest things that I've experienced. And there was a great deal of cruelty revolving around my sister's abduction. Uh, well, uh you know, this is this has been horrible to listen to the, all of this. It really has been. Sitting here listening to how Pennsylvania has failed you and your sisters, it's just horrible. When we talk about the Department of Child Services, Planned Parenthood, teachers in the schools, you and your sisters have been completely ignored and I am so sorry that you went through this, you and your family. Uh, I hope that you find healing and that, you know, God is able to bring you through this. Okay. It's my hope that the rest of the family gets to where I am. Well, and, I, I hope they do too. Yeah. 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 Well, it and, was pretty brave for you to come on here tonight. <laughs> uh, it was pretty brave for you to come on here tonight and tell your story. And I'm really, really proud of you, Justina. Hey, um, <laughs> we have ran out of time, hon. Okay. And I want you to let everybody know. I know you have a, a website or a Facebook or something where, you know, regarding your sister. Can you tell them all about that? I do. The Facebook page is called Walking Jolene Home. And <clears throat> there's not much on it <clears throat> except um, once a year on August 26th. <clears throat> I, this, this, this year, I created a virtual online event. And that's where we walk the distance of my sister <clears throat> from the hospital to our house was approximately one mile. Okay. And, um, <clears throat> This year was very different. This year, because of lockdown, 
And because my husband has an underlying condition, we did not go to Pennsylvania and walk my sister home. This is the first year we haven't in 30 some odd years. Okay. Um, so this year it was, we walked a mile. And then, then what I do is I release a feather into the sea. And I know we're running out of time, so I want to be careful with that. Um, but the reason is because one ocean touches another, touches another, touches another. And I love the thought that I can send love out across the waves to travel the world via the waterways. Okay. And, and one other thing happened this year, and that is I found a website, um, Buried Cold Cases, where I was able to tell my sister's story and for the very first time in more than three decades, I was granted grace. I was expecting people to ridicule me and to mock me like they did in Pennsylvania. And instead people were gentle and validating and loving and the, the, the grace, the sudden granting of grace was so unexpected it, I cried for days Yeah, and I wanted to return some of that grace to families of the missing so what I did was I bought the most beautiful journal that I could find and I bought a feathered pen and I am collecting names of the murdered and the missing and the lost and the gone alright great great and every year Okay. After I walked my sister home, I read these names by the sea. And okay. this was the first year. So, listeners, send me your names. Send me the names and of did loved you, ones. And did you tell them how that they can find it on Facebook? They can find it on Walking Jolene Home. Or they can reach out to me on Facebook. My name is Sugar Lakey on Facebook. Okay. They okay. can reach out to me and tell me names. Or they can post in uh, Buried Cold Crimes. I mean, buried cold cases. And I will gather these names and I will read them every year on August 26th. Right. And I will release a feather into the sea for Jolene and every name on the book. All right. All right. Great. All right, guys, we have run out of time. And once again, Justina, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Okay, guys, like I said, um, we have ran out of time and, and go to our Facebook Crime Pursuit Podcast uh, we'll interact with you go to our Instagram we'll interact with you as, as well alright thank you for listening have a good night <laughs>